Welcome to WebRush, the weekly talk show that brings you stories of real-world development from industry experts and developers like you and me. Each week, Ward Bell, Dan Walleen, Craig Shoemaker, and John Papa find out what it takes to write, deploy, and maintain apps that stand up to the demands of the real world. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to WebRush. This is episode 268. And today, we're going to talk about democratizing AI and, and what the heck that even means. Not AI, but democratizing. What are we going with there? My name is John Papa, along with my co-host Ward Bell. And today, we're going to bring on a special guest, Lee Stott, to talk about democratizing AI. Welcome to the show, Lee. Thanks, John. Thanks, Ward. Great to be here. I'm really looking forward to the discussions. We're glad to have you. And to share a little bit more with our audience about Lee, let me tell you a little bit about him. Lee Stott is a visionary tech leader at Microsoft dedicated to democratizing AI through innovation. With over two decades of experience spanning software development and AI, Lee pioneers solutions that bridge the gap between technology and accessibility. As an advocate manager, he empowers developers and organizations to harness AI's potential using Microsoft tools, services, technologies, and platforms. And Lee, who I've known for a couple of years now, is also an honorary associate professor at the University College of London and has just a passion, it seems. Ever since I've known you, you just, I associate university and collegiate learning to you. Like, that is like who you are, it seems to me. Yeah, you just sometimes feel like it, doesn't it? I think it's, I've just been in <laughs> academia since day one, I think. So yeah, I've worked in universities, I've worked in tech sector, I've gone back to universities, I sit on a number of different industrial advisory boards for universities and startups. So, yeah, it's my real passionate area of, of seeing the growth of the future of technology and, and, and society. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really passionate about education. I, I could definitely tell it. I know in our conversations, like the places I see you light up the most, like you get excited and your face lights up is when you're talking about a student that you've worked with and seeing the really cool stuff that they've done. So um, really appreciate that about you. Ward, I want you to lean into this topic because I mentioned the title Democratizing AI and you immediately went on your Dr. Brown Back to the Future tirade. And so I, I want you to tell us what's going on here. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I, you know, I, uh, Lee and I are just getting acquainted here and I saw the bio and the thing that leapt out to me was uh, the words democratizing AI. And so... I have a, a a meter in my head that goes off when I hear certain kinds of things, and the needle's sort of pegged to the red. It's not that I I don't. I mean, I love demo, you know the idea of democratizing anything. All right, so who's against democracy? Nobody here in this room. Um, but I had this sort of uh, uh, throwback reaction to the early days of the web when it was first coming out and there was lots of, uh, you know, this is going to be great for everybody's going to be in there. It'll be unicorns and rainbows. Uh, we're all going to be able to do things with each other and communicate in ways we've never have before. It's going to be, we're going to be free of commercial interests because, you know, um, and it certainly hasn't, uh, you know, that hasn't kind of played out uh, along the way. I mean, to a certain degree, it's true, right? Like we are all able to reach each other in a way that we never have before. Um, so I'm not ready to put a stake in the heart of, of the web. Uh, but uh, it is, you know, it quickly 
it was dominated by commercial interests and political interests. And we see things like what's happened with Twitter now X, which hardly, I mean, you know, in some people's view, that's been democratized in other people's view, maybe not so much. So I'm deeply suspicious of this. When a new technology comes along and we start saying we're going to democratize it. But, uh, you know, uh, you know, Lee, uh, what the heck do you mean? OK, so I'm, it sounds like I've got a task to, to try and convince you of the opportunity of democratization when, when we're talking about AI services and, and its use across society. So for me, I think the real key one is when when you look at like the current um, status of, of teaching across the world, you know, if you look at the key aspects that teachers have today, you know, teachers are trying to do so many different aspects in terms of that student's lifestyle style. And, you know, really, when it comes down to it, universities are, are, are interested in two things. It's about getting the students in, getting students in, number one, so the number of people who apply for those roles. And then secondly, it's about those students who graduate, ideally going into employability in those areas. And this is an area that, as Microsoft, we're really interested in. We want students to have, you know, the, the aspiration, the passion, but also those skills to join technology companies, whether they're Microsoft itself or whether they're partners. So if we look at democratization of IT, it's really about, you know, how can we provide services, tools and technologies that really help those educators and learners access those services? So if you take, for example, some of the recent announcements around, you know, it's not really recent to us as Microsoft, but the recent announcements in the public domain, so things like GitHub Copilot, um, you know, that is really democratized how students learn to code. So, you know, you could start with a very fundamental Python course at a, a pre, you know, a, a K-12 school. So students aged, you know, above 10 and be using Copilot to help them really just get the grasps of how to interact with the actual operate, you know, with the actual device, with, you know, with the, the PC itself. That could be through chat. So again, you know, you're opening up this democratization to accessibility. So a previous student who may be disabled, you know, they couldn't really interact with those, you know, with, with an IDE system, you know, unless they installed specific extensions or services. So, you know, now with the ability to use voice and natural language, we really open up that access of tools and services to a new audience that was never there before. And then if you take technology from a teaching like pedagogy perspective and think about assessment and attainment, those tools now being used to, number one, build curriculum and resources and experiences. So things like Kaggle and things like Udacity and all these learning experiences now are really being driven from AI aspects. Number one, for the vendor, it really helps them um, get content out there quickly to a fairly high quality. But from a learner's perspective, it can also create this personalized learning journey because they're having content given to them appropriate. So, so Lee, I want to I want to stop you for a second. I want to stop you for a second because maybe it's my problem is with the word democracy, which I usually think of as having something to do with <laughs> voting, not with necessarily with how many people are involved, right? Like, would you, for example, it's undeniable that the iPhone changed uh, the number of people who had access to. Uh, a phone and to applications and stuff like that. Would you say that Apple had democratized the uh, the, the phone and app market? <laughs> no. <laughs> or, or would you just say they'd push their product out everywhere? You know what I mean? 
So this sounds like we're just... No, I think it's an interesting one when you take into consideration, you know, when you're, when you're trying to compare things like, you know, the launch of the iPhone, which was, you know, completely revolutionary. I remember the time, you know, I was walking around with a BlackBerry and I was like, oh my God, Blackberries are amazing. And then the iPhone launched and I was like, oh my God, that's like, that's a killer. So, you know, that's not democratization because again, it had, you know, a significant price point. So if you think about democratization of services, is it accessible? Is it attainable? Is it available to all? And I think this is where, you know, there is opportunity now within AI services and cloud services globally that AI is, is now becoming, you know, is, is pervasive. It's there, but it's also a price point or an attainment level which most users can access. So if you're, you know, if you're a student and you want to access Google, Amazon or Microsoft, there is free offers there. So that's democratizing access to those services. Again, you know, from a, um, an implementation perspective, the way that the students can start to use this is democratized as well. So, you know, from, from Microsoft's perspective, we provide free learning resources. So we have Microsoft Learn, which is completely free. So you're saying that, you know, the barrier to learn technology is being democratized and it's also available to all because it's localized. So when a user wants to learn um, you know, how to use Visual Studio or how to use C Sharp, they can go to these resources and it's within their local language and it's free. So to me, that is really the democratization of access to these tools, services and technologies, which then inspire those, you know, those young young people or those people who want to reskill into this industry the opportunity of either becoming a you know a, a startup, so they could have an amazing idea, have no idea anything about technology, then find that they've got access to these resources, um, and then be able to go on and create a startup or you know become a technology provider or solution. So to me, that's really where the opportunity sits today. And, and again, with democratization, it's think about all those different subjects that we learned. You know, car mechanics now have to be computer programmers. You know, electric cars are no longer go and fix it with a spanner. It's go and plug a laptop into it and run a diagnostic or a firmware update or a software update or, you know, reprogram X, Y, and Z. So technology has now become pervasive in all industries. And we need to lower that access barrier by democratization so people can learn those new skills. Hey, Ward, you know, I was building an application the other day and I pulled in this really cool UI component, but it brought along a lot of dependencies with it. How do you deal with that? I don't like that, John. Um, it reminds me uh, that the AG Grid, which is a uh, an advanced uh, data editable data table that we use in a lot of our enterprise apps because it, it addresses the complex scenarios we encounter. Um, AG Grid doesn't have any dependencies at all. Zero dependencies. Well, tell me, why, why is that good? Like, what is the value of having zero dependencies? Well, it's, it's wonderful not having to wonder if while I'm pulling that in, I'm also pulling jQuery in or Lodash or who knows what, uh, in part because that's extra stuff coming over the wire. It's extra files that I don't know what they're all about. Uh, it means when my client security team has to evaluate this, they're evaluating AG Grid and not everything else that might be slipping in under the covers or is something that we have to worry about there. You know, it's great to see this day and age, you can have a zero dependency library that does something like complex data grid functionality. So all of you out there, do check out AG Grid at their website at ag-grid.com. I'll say too that democratizing to me 
the way, way I think of it is, how are we making something accessible to everybody? Like when you're truly democratizing something, everyone has access. And I like the iPhone example because the iPhone example in a lot of ways is very uh, Western world elite, right? Like even the iPhone is not pervasive around the world. It's not the most pervasive device, right? All the Android devices, um, you know, collectively, I think have a far more market share. But even if you consider all of those, there is a cost barrier. There's a access barrier where someplace they can't even get them. There's an internet accessibility or electricity barrier in some countries to be able to use them. So what does a democratizing truly mean? With with AI, the way I think of this is, if we're truly democratizing AI, not only would the car mechanic, as you mentioned, Lee, who has to learn about computers to, to scan the, you know, do your tires need to be aligned, for example, but also to be able to figure out for the average person, how do I know if my car is operating well? Like, how do I change my tire? How do I check my idiot lights on the dashboard yeah. when something turns orange? And people used to just go to YouTube, or they still do, but could AI help them go there too? Like, how do we lower the level of, of that barrier so anybody can do anything they want to anymore? And I don't know if we'll ever get there for everything, but to me, that's what democratizing means. It's not just the elite, right? It's it's the everyone's. Yeah, and, and again, I think, you know, that's, that's a really great example about, you know, um, just the mechanics. But if, if you can take, like, you know, if you consider the general user population now, you know, so whether you're using heating systems, you know, the Internet of Things, you know, being able to control devices from a device which you speak to, like an Alexa or a Google Assistant, you know, was pipe dreams six years ago, seven years ago. Now it's a common reality and you've got children from the age of two using this technology to great-grandparents at 100. So to me, again, that's a great example of democratization. And, and again, if you look at where we're going with AI and AI assistance, democratization only happens when it becomes the norm, if that makes sense. So it's not, it doesn't feel alien to you when you're actually trying to complete a task or do an activity. Like, you know, you could say Google Maps is an AI assistant because you, you put in a destination, it tells you how long it's going to take to get there and it will reroute you. But no one thinks of that as being like an AI. It's like, oh, and I think this is where we're going now with, with new agents and new technology softwares where the user or the consumer feels in control. And I think that's another key aspect of democratization. It's no longer given to you, it's, 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 it's giving you what you want. It's going back to like the search analogy of the, you know, the Alta Vista Netscape days of, you know, you had to go and find something. Now it's, it's literally an interaction and it's, it's you know, it's a, it's a positive interaction in most cases. And I think that's, again, a key thing about, you know, the ethics of AI and the responsibility of AI. So it becomes transparent and trustworthy. So again, it feels democratized because it's not a two-tier system. It's not like I'm paying $100 so I get more access and you're paying nothing so you get no, no access. Well, it's my turn to push back a little bit. Look, I buy, you know, th I, t <laughs> there's no question that the tendency is to, uh, and what you're, what's being driven here is um, more, more pervasive access to um, the this tool, this resource, by people more geographically spread out and who have to pay less in order 
to access it. Not zero. Uh, and I didn't want to get hung up on the iPhone because the introduction of the iPhone led to the introduction of the Android phone and it led to the introduction of cheaper and cheaper phones such that anywhere in the world, people have cheap phones, not the iPhone 13, but the, you know, they have whatever they have. Uh, it, uh, so all that, so let me hold that aside. My problem is with the word, with the use of the word democracy here, I'm still struggling with it because it seems to be implying something that is not going on. And I think it's, it, 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 and that, and it bothers me in a way because, you know, if you type the word democracy into the web, as I just did, it, democracy is about governance. It's so to, to turn something from something into a democracy is to change the way that thing is governed. In no sense are we, cha- by making these things uh, cheaper and more available, are we changing the way they're governed? And, and so it feels, th- there's a term called greenwashing, which is you try and say something's very environmental when you mean something else. To me, there's, and I'm not going to drive the rest of this into the ground because now I know what you're talking about. I don't, I don't have to say it, but I'm going to continue to cringe when the word democracy creeps in because it's about that's about governance, not accessibility. The, the Greeks were introduced democracy, but it wasn't very accessible, not even within Athens. Um, so uh, I just, I'm going to let that horse i'm going to stop beating that horse but i want to leave you and our audience with the thought that maybe this maybe there's something uncomfortable about our trying to talk about one thing accessibility and painting it with this other thing which is really about governance and that makes me uncomfortable i've said my piece on we go yeah i think you know coming back to the governance piece i think you know it's it's really an interesting aspect because if if you think about you know an ai system without governance or control. And I think this is, again, you know, really stemming back to that trustworthy, responsible computing aspects of of AI is, you know, there has to be a set of standards that the technology is using. So, you know, if if all vendors and all technology providers work to the same standards, is that a democratization of the AI? You could say, yes, it is. You know, it's a governance control. It's a framework that is implemented. So I think, you know, is democratization the right word? Is accessibility the right word? I'm not sure accessibility is the right word because, again, there is so many different facets of accessibility. You know, you've got the whole diversity and inclusion aspects of accessibility, and then you've got, you know, the specifics of disability support around accessibility. You then have the the nuances of, of localized government and legislation around that as well because, you know, every country runs to different standards. So I think, you know, that's a key aspect of of the need for AI governance to ensure you know that those key facets are met by people building this technology to ensure that from a user's perspective the services are fair and trustworthy and responsible and they have a layer of ethical consideration in how AI is being used you know the the situation of AI, when, when I'm speaking to customers or with students or or even with with peers is around just because AI can do it, should you do it? You know, that should be like the number one question that you ask, you know, just because we can do it today with technology, is it the right thing to do? So, you know, I think that's that's one of the key aspects for me that is is really, really important when anybody 
thinks about using technology for whatever subject or whatever implementation they wish to do. Lee, in your mind, who is AI for? Like, who is the target audience? I think AI is for everyone. You know, if you said to, to someone, you know, seven years ago, who do you think is going to be the primary user of an iPad? I don't think Steve Jobs would have said a two-year-old. <laughs> you know, and you go out in, in shopping malls or walking around the streets and you will see children everywhere, you know, toddlers, babies with these devices. So for me, AI is, is really around how, how, you know, going back to the accessibility perspective of how can people utilize this and does it become pervasive? You know, there's a, a great example from CS this year of, of Rabbit, which is a new device, which is really... You know, the, the, the way they, they're looking at it is, is the reinvention of the mobile phone to become more of an automated AI assistant who can understand the environment which you're in, which can tell you about the environment, which can give you the prompting, which can give you the messaging, which can give you communication. So, you know, is AI is going to radically change the way we interact with our devices and services is going to radically change. You know, Copilot being embedded within Windows and, you know, I know Johnny's a big Mac user, but I take that as a massive advantage to being a Windows user compared with with the Mac users. So, you know, again, is that is that going to create a two tiered society of how people interact with AI? You know, AI is now becoming included in all devices. You know, Google have, have included AI within all their pitch taking apps, and you can say, well, our picture is going to be real in the future. You know, because I can take out this this part of the image, or I can create everybody's faces to look a certain way. And I think it's really about how society goes back to those considerations of responsibility of, you know, how is this being used? How is it being, you know, how is it being implemented? And again, you know, I think we're in a massive inflection point of how how society uses technology and how AI will either be an amazing assistant, but it will require those governance controls. So it's the governments that's that's kind of in a lot of people's minds. Um, I, you know, we've talked about things that I think are universally innocuous, like co-pilot, like, man, who's against that? So let me uh, let me throw a little dystopia at you. You know, um, uh, there are people of a certain age. We're thinking about they're trying to plan for their retirement and looking to AI would be a great place to learn about that. Maybe they want to democratize access to financial information and stuff like that. But I, I'm wondering what happens when um, th- th- these AI things say, you know, uh, annuities are, are not, that, you know, that's a, that's a ripoff and highly managed, high expense funds are, you know, and you're one of these companies that's trying to wrap an AI system that's trying to help their customers and they're not going to be too happy when AI starts providing uh, suggestions that are contrary to their economic interest. That's just a tiny example of what concerns me about this, you know, this sort of this, uh, hey, it's going to be wonderful once we have AI in everything, because it's not just giving arbitrary it's not just giving facts it's it, we're asking it to shape our opinions and that scares me. yeah and i think again you know this this is where governance you know government standards are going to be really key it's like the uk and, and europe have just been you know 
launching um, the AI digital act. And you know, AI should never make AI should never be that primary decision when it impacts a human being. I, I literally was did a session this week with a, a, a new startup, a new Microsoft startup called Three Two One Go Check. So there's a nice little name call for them. They're an amazing UK startup who are basically doing. Um, a, an automated one-click solution for background checking. That's that's their aspirational goal. They want to be able to say to uh, landlord tenants or job recruitment companies, you can do your background checking of X candidate with one click using AI services. And the system is really nice because you know it's, it's based on prompt injection. So it's literally taking the key questions that uh, an advisor would ask re-inject them and using RAG to then understand the data structure of the individual, plus then a known entity of, of you know, what the what the company what requires from that candidate. But you know, what the way they've really done is is built into that system a, a method of where human intervention is required. So the AI does not have the final say. And this is so, so key to you know, the future of society. You know, we cannot have just AI making decisions on, on everybody's behalf. And then, you know, if you look at other situations that are out there, you know, there is people who don't have access. So, you know, a great example is, you know, unemployment across the globe. How do they get support for job seeking, et cetera? You know, we can't just have AI doing this for them because they might not have access to those AI services or the terminals, et cetera. So, you know, we have to look at, you know, the 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 logistics of where AI is suitable, and also the impact to society if AI just replaced all these white-collar workers. Because, you know, that's that, that's a huge, you know, call, all call centers suddenly became AI. You know, there is massive lack of, of, of you know, understanding, knowledge, impact to users. You know, if, if you just said to a, a university, okay, you know, you've currently got 200 teaching assistants supporting this course, and they're paid $18 an hour, oh, AI would be amazing to replace all these teaching assistants, but AI isn't on its own going to solve everything. So I think it's about how society evolves its solutions and technologies, but brings along people, organizations, and roles and responsibilities with that. So Lee, now I think you really are talking about the domain of things in which questions of democracy or not, you know, or the lack of democracy are, I mean, this is the area if one was talking about democratizing would be about how do we make sure that the, um, as, as a population, as a people that our AI is serving, you know, the popular will or the popular needs rather than those of a select few. This, if this, if if this was what we were talking about with about democratization, that would make more sense to me rather than the accessibility question that we were talking about earlier. But I think we've covered that. Uh, I'm ready to put a bow around that and move on to the next thing. But thank you for indulging my uh, little hobby horse there. Kind of problem, Walt. Are you building a web application? Need to deliver it soon and don't have the people to do it? Maybe you're not sure your company has the skill set or experience to do it, and maybe we can help. I'm your host, Ward Bell, and my day job is building applications for companies like yours. I don't do it alone. I'm president of IdeaBlade, a consultancy that specializes in enterprise web application development. We're particularly strong in Angular, RxJS, NGRx Redux on the front end, and .NET Microsoft technologies on the server. We're a small, tight-knit group of people handpicked by me for their expertise, experience, integrity, and team spirit. 
Maybe we can help you with architectural guidance and hands-on development. And if there's something we don't know, and in our field, really, there's too much to know, we can draw on our personal connections in the Microsoft RD, MVP, and Google GDE networks, as well as our international circle of really great developers, people we know and trust personally. If you got a project that's keeping you up at night, shoot us an email at info at ideablade.com. That's info at ideablade.com. And now back to the show. Every time I, and this is a little bit of the insights for our audience about Lee. Whenever I talk to Lee, Lee gets very passionate about things. I know somebody else like that, by the way. Uh, his name is Ward. So Lee has these passion areas and he gets excited about certain topics uh, and he drives forward on them pretty good. So what I want to know is your, uh, your role revolves around AI extensively at Microsoft. Um, but it seems like you are just passionately invested in this topic as well. And I'd love for you to share, like, if you had like a top two or three places you think that people really should dive into AI and what's most interesting to you, could you share that with our audience here? Oh, gosh, yeah. So for me, I think, you know, you know, everything we've talked about is really, you know, AI is is, is new. You know, so most people across the globe, it's new. And I think we're, we're at this, this opportunity of, of really three key factors. You know, there's those organizations and companies are going to just adopt AI because it's there, you know, they've got the licenses, it's it's easily accessible. And then there's these real two key opportunities, which I think are just like, oh my God, you know, this is this is like the the iPhone moment, which we talked about earlier. You know, this is a, a once-in-a-lifetime sort of precipice. And you've got the extend piece, which is really about, you know, I've got this solution, I've got this license, I've got this software, and now I want to extend it because I have this specific problem or or idea. And again, this is going to be like this new cutting area where people can use things like, you know, semantic or vector search or or prompting to do these amazing things, which are very specific to their organization and business. And then you've got this huge, huge opportunity of what, you know, is, is really, I've got an idea, I'm going to build it myself, I'm going to build my own. So, you know, think of, of, of you know, things like Llama or, you know, all these LLMs and SLMs. There is just like a massive opportunity now of how, where, when, what do I build this around? And then what is the opportunity and go to market of it? So for me, I think these are like the amazing experiences. And again, most of these ideas are not coming from like computer science people. They're coming from business people and people who have had those lived experiences and, and want access to this data in a, in a way which is, it's human. I think that's the easiest concept I can use is it's human. It doesn't feel like, oh, my God, you know, I've got to program this thing. I can just ask it a question. I can speak to it. I can, you know, interact with it with a keyboard. Um, I can give it something. It's going to give me a response back, which it understands. So I think for me, that's what's so exciting today about the opportunity of AI. And I think there's so many choices and so many avenues. Um yeah, super passionate about that area. And I love giving like challenges to people about this area. <laughs> yeah, I think I love that about it. Um, the the idea of getting, of uh, changing who's the gatekeeper, where we have to go to learn something. Um, that's part of the whole movement of the internet on which this is just uh, the latest uh, uh, eye-opening, uh, opportunity-opening thing. So I'm all for it. Lee, what's your personal thing you're working on right now in AI? Because I know you've got something. Yeah, so, so my personal thing now is really around the whole of what we call impromptu engineering. So there's technologies like Semantic Kernel and Langchain, and it's really about, you know, how 
do we build in those those aspects of the interaction with the data um, and and provide those services that are meaningful to an end user so if you know if we take for example um, you know having having specific features or services to that data so you know you ask you could ask a question about um I'll give you a great example. Okay, you know, you're a geography teacher, a history teacher at school, and you want to really get like students inspired around kings and queens of England. So imagine if, you know, you could today say to those students, right, okay, you're going to have access to this service where you can say, okay, give me a visualization of the kings and queens of England. And, you know, if you if you had that task, you could do amazing things. You could like create Gantt charts, you could create, create flow charts, you could create you know, histograms or mind maps. So for me, this is the opportunity today is how do we build amazing solutions that can then be adapted and implemented to whether it's a, a you know, a geography teacher teaching grade six students, um, you know, around water features to a business who wants to understand their current equities in, I don't know, in petroleum industries. It's the same underlying technologies and principles and the visualizations are going to be the same constructs, but the business problem is going to be so different. And and again, that is that's like my key area. It's like, whoa, this is so cool. <laughs> and I want to take a quick sidestep on this too. So you mentioned Langchang and Semantic Kernel, which help me out here is how would you describe those to people out there in the audience? Yeah, so think of these as being a, an easy way to. So let's be really simplistic about this because we don't know who the audience is. So think about these as being a real easy way to interface with those constructs of data and create what we call a prompt, you know, prompt flow. So where you actually re-inject the prompt. So you start with a basic question and then you can enhance that question as you go along. So that's that's like the key principle to having real well-structured prompts, but then also understanding the context of the data. So if you ask a prompt to outdated data, the prompt is going to, you know, the, the, the actual content that you're going to get back is going to be completely wrong or out of date or, or not relevant to that area. So things like Langchain and Semantic Kernel allow you to bring in additional data sources and resources to then get that accurate data back to the end user. Yeah, so you can like pull in things like with Semantic Kernel. I know we've done some examples where you're pulling in like OpenAI or Azure OpenAI, which are slightly different. Um, and you could use languages like C Sharp, Python, maybe your own custom uh, large language model as well. Yeah, so the development languages are typically Python.net, but it's more around how to get access to data and other resources within that data infrastructure. So when you're prompting, you can actually bring in additional data resources or APIs. Like your own SharePoint site or PDFs or whatever your data is? The PDFs, text files, images, you know, yeah. it could be any type of data, basically. It could be on-site, off-site, et cetera. Could it be Ward's financial IRA <laughs> so he can help him do his retirement planning? <laughs> yeah, it could be, yeah, it could be. <laughs> Hey, Lee, this was a really fascinating conversation. I, I love having you on here because you just uh, a wealth of knowledge. Uh, and I love listening to Ward kind of push on you a little bit too. That was a fun, fun day. I had my popcorn out listening to that one. That was excellent. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely going to have to change democratization. <laughs> <laughs> and hey, at the end of our show, we'd like to talk about our final thoughts for the audience, which can be on topic or just any topic that's top of mind for us. Before we get to that, I want to say a special thank you to our sponsors for keeping us on the air every week. To IdeaBlade, Ward's company, do consulting. If you have any consulting needs, please reach out to Ward through IdeaBlade. And to AG Grid, the best grid on the web. 
Uh, for both of you, thank you for keeping us on the air. And for all of you out there, thanks for listening every week. Ward, I'm starting with you, sir. What are your final thoughts to the audience today? I'm going to step away from the AI thing, although, you know, I'm tempted to, to you know, to tell a story about how I got started in AI in the 70s, which was very uh, apropos of what you've been talking Sorry, about. Sorry, 1870s or 1970s? Yeah, uh, it was before electricity, John, but we used to <laughs> slap rocks together and call it AI. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'll keep hitting you with a rock, John, until your intelligence goes up. That's artificial intelligence. I'm also, I'm just endlessly fascinated by how, uh, people decide what projects are worth pursuing and how they should be estimated and how you shape them, you know, and and it's true for any project that we want to do. And, uh, so I, I kind of thought I knew a lot of them, but the other day, a client uh, said, we use something called ShapeUp from Basecamp, and I'd never heard of it. Uh, and so, you know. Sorry, what was it called again? ShapeUp. ShapeUp. That sounds like a song from Taylor Swift. It does. Shape it up. Boom. So I, I put the link into our show notes. And usually what my client recommends, I'm like, oh, my God, well, I got I guess I got to learn, you know, speak the language here. But what have they gotten me into? But I actually was very taken with this uh, because it kind of goes back to the roots of it, it throws away all the agile stuff. You can't get a certificate. Best thing. You can't get a certificate in it. Hooray. No, forget you it. Can- I'm not doing yeah. it then. <laughs> <laughs> you can't go to school for shape up yet. Therefore, you are not, you don't have these these long processes and all this stuff. The, the, the link is to the book, their book, and a book is short. Another thing that speaks to it. Okay, so uh, it's alternative uh, agile and it's short. What do I really like? It's not often that somebody throws my uh you know, throws a wrench into something that I feel really experienced about. But there's one of the interesting early concepts, just to wet your whistle here, is it says we should do we should measure the appetite, not the estimate. I said, what do you mean appetite? It starts from the premise. It's like it's it, look, take something you think needs doing, and ask the question: How much is it worth? How much time would you give this thing? And if uh, once you know that, you say the constraint is the time. It has to be done in this amount of time or we ain't doing it. This is very different than starting out with a list of requirements and then estimating all the tasks that would go into it, where you kind of sort of dream about all the features it could have. And right. No, this says, hey, the the, you know, the customer asked for a a calendar. We don't really want to give them a calendar, but we understand the need. But to do a calendar would take six months. It ain't worth it to us to do a full-blown drag and drop da-da-da-da calendar. So it's maybe solving this need of the customer is worth about six weeks. So what what can I do? It forces you to look and say, well, what are they even asking for? What, when they said they wanted a calendar, what did they really want? And then when you sort of unpack that, you say, okay, I don't have to give them what came off the top of my head. I know what a calendar is. That's what I'm going to give them. You start to say, well, what is calendar? What is, what do they need? And what is calendar like about it? What are they trying to solve? And maybe 
I can define something that I can accomplish in six weeks that actually solves the problem they have. Never in my life of looking at methodologies has anybody looked at it that way. Incredibly refreshing. And I think um, uh, y'all might find, maybe 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 you've seen that before yourself. I never have. Clients always come with, this is what we want to do. Don't know why, but, you know, tell me what it'll cost to do it. No, no, no. You get this much. What could you do with this much, this much resources? So if this interests you, go look at Shapa. I still have Taylor Swift in my head. Sorry. Um, But no, it it sounds interesting. And I I have Jason Kelsey in my... (laughs) I've taken my shirt off. They can't see it, but I've got a beer in one hand. And my shirt is off. Yeah, that's the meme going around everywhere right now. Uh, with that great visual for our audience in mind, I'm going to switch to Lee Stott's final thoughts. <laughs> I just have my mind melted, I'll be honest. <laughs> and believe me, you didn't want to see the site. <laughs> so for me, I think it's really about, you know, um, the key focus for me is about opportunity. Okay, you know, I think human societies become impatient is the word. So, you know, it's like, Everybody wants everything within five seconds, you know, whether it's a, a web page to download to, to do a transaction. So for me, it's about friction-free, you know, the, well, not friction-free, but the lowest amount of friction a user can go through to get an experience or undertake a task, I think is like my key number one priority. So it's not, you know, for me, it's no longer like the service, if that makes sense, it's the onboarding to the service. So can I get that service within you know five seconds or can I get it within so many clicks? And then does it work? Whereas I just feel that at the moment, people are just impatient that if it doesn't work first time, I'm not going to try again. I'm going to go somewhere else. So I think that's my key priority at the moment is thinking about how do we make that onboarding experience? So even before the tech, the best experience possible. I like that. And it kind of leads into my final thought, which is all about experience. And that's, I think far too often, we lead everything with tech. Everything's got a tech solution for everything. And it's easy for us who are in the tech industry, the three of us to talk about it this way, because that's part of what we do for a living. But I think sometimes we forget that we're all humans and humans don't think and act and feel and do things the same way that computers do. Um, that's why we have computers to do those things. But I think there's a lot of things that we need to experience ourselves first. And I'll give you a great example. Uh, building a product, I work for Microsoft, building a product, one of the common things we talk about is, are we using that product ourselves so we know what that feels like? So that we are, um, people call it eating your own dog food, right? Um, strange expression, by the way. But how do you make sure that this thing is actually giving the right experience, that it's solving the right problem uh, and in the marketing world, they do the same thing where you can make the most amazing product, but if you don't market it properly, who's going to use it? So this is one of those things I think we all have to take that step back once in a while. As Ward likes to say, let's take a step back for a minute and really try to understand what are we trying to solve here? What's the problem we're trying to solve? Uh, and maybe tech's the right solution. Maybe it's not. Uh, and even if it is, just make sure you keep the eye on that prize. So... That is my final thought for today. And again, Lee, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing all this with us. For all you out there, thank you for listening to us for yet another week of Web Rush. And you'll see us or hear from us next Thursday morning. See you next time. <laughs>